Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 9th, 2010. Yeah, I'm still on the road. I'm at the uh, Big Tent Christianity event put on by the Emergent Church. I guess you can say I have uh, some reporting to do on it, but I'm going to have to save that until after I uh, get back in the studio and get back to Indianapolis. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And sadly, sadly, I, I must report that I've heard some of those crazy things at the Big Tent Christianity Conference uh, being put on, uh, well, as I'm recording, it's we're in process. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to begin day two here, and as a result of my attendance and uh, and you know the uh, the challenges of logistically working things out and recording while traveling, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith and tomorrow's will be a Friday light. And uh, what I've decided to do is uh, play two classic lectures from a well-known Lutheran theologian uh, by the name of Gerhard Forty. And um, I, I have to warn you ahead of time that the audio quality is not the best on these two lectures. Um, the, the first lecture is entitled God's Decision, and the second one is entitled uh, Man's Decision or a Human Decision. It, it's really talking about salvation by grace alone. And uh, Gerhard Forty just so you know, was a confessional Lutheran uh, professor and scholar, and uh, and he died back in uh, 2005. And uh, he, uh, in LCMS circles, his uh, his books on uh, on the theology, his book on the theology of the cross, and that the uh, the gospel, the God's word is for proclamation. I mean, his works are classic and well received and well revered in. Um, in in uh, confessional Lutheran circles, regardless of uh, what your uh, letter, uh, what what letters your particular Lutheran group subscribes to, uh, and uh, he so um, even and he was kind of one of the few confessional Lutherans left in the ELCA as they continued their slide into really uh, oblivion, and so uh, it's it's good to hear him. And it, it, I gotta also warn you: not only is the audio quality different. 
My suspicion is that Gerhard Forty is um, well, as he tells the as he as he unfolds his lecture, he kind of has that pace uh, that Garrison Keeler uh, talks about as far as the Norwegian Lutheran way of kind of talking, and so. Uh, he doesn't have that riveting, bulleted, you know, cadence, and uh, you know, the brilliant way of kind of pull, snatching this and pulling this in, and, and all bringing it together in a big, tidy bow, uh, in, in, in the way Albert Muller does. No, no, and this is more along the lines of that Prairie Home Companion kind of theologian, at least the way he delivers. And uh, and so it's definitely these are worth passing along. And I I have to warn you. Um, some of what you hear will be challenging, not because it's liberal. No, 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 no. That's not, he, I don't think he has a liberal bone in his body. No, it's going to be challenging because uh, his ideas, uh, you know, in in being faithful to the scriptures and to uh, into uh, the Lutheran confessions, uh, they have a tendency to uh, step on toes in uh, today's American rugged individualistic uh, culture and how that's seeped into our Christianity. And so without any further ado, and by the way, just so you know, you're not hearing anything uh, odd here. Uh, this will be, uh, I'm going to, because of my limitations on my time, we're going to be listening to this entire lecture uh, commercial free. And so uh, in fact, at the end of it, I won't even sign off. Uh, instead, what you're, we're, we're going to go is just straight to the music. And so I need to remind you ahead of time that this is listener-supported radio. You know my shtick. Visit FightingForTheFaith.com to support us. So without any further ado, here is Gearheart 40. First, just a word about uh, your assignment. <laughs> I have deposited on the back table there couple of stacks of uh, papers. Uh, it's simply uh, a section from Luther's commentary on Genesis, uh, where Luther is commenting <coughs> on Genesis 26. It doesn't really have so much to do with the text, <laughs> but he took the occasion to say something about question of predestination, and it's one of the more interesting and clearest passages, I think, in Luther about that. Now it's just a few pages, and uh, the assignment is to read it, uh, every, and, and then after you read it one day, read it again the next day. As uh, the beloved Andy Burgess used to say, if you haven't read it before, read it again. <laughs> To read it several times and uh, note carefully what is being said. Uh, Luther is the kind of theologian that has to be read many times. Uh, and one of the interesting things, of course, is when you read him, to note not only what he says, but what he doesn't say. <laughs> uh, what he, he doesn't say that you would expect him or maybe want him to say. Uh, because many times the key to what he is saying, uh, I think, rests in, in the kinds of, you know, moves that he makes. The things that he does not say, that he isn't really interested in saying, uh, they're just as remarkable very often as what he does say. 
Now I want to talk about, I suppose you'd call it, decision theology. I know that this week has been billed as Luther's down-to-earth theology, uh, but I suppose uh, when it gets right down to it, the most uh, vital part of that down-to-earth theology, the place where it connects most directly with us, is when we get down to the question about what is, of what is today called decision theology. Whose decision are we talking about? Now, there are several reasons why I'm doing this. I guess one reason was that I see that, that there are uh, many of you here who were in a lay class this last year with me. Uh, and when I heard that uh, a lot of you were going to be here, I asked, well, what should we talk about? And they all said, oh, the same thing. <laughs> uh, and I guess you could say that uh, at least some people accuse me of talking about the same thing all the time. Anyway, no matter what course, is it, course it is, it turns out to be more of the same. Uh, once somebody asked me, well, uh, would you like to teach a course in stewardship? And I said, sure, I'll teach a course in stewardship. The text will be the bondage of the will. <laughs> I didn't, they didn't ask me to, to teach the course. But I suppose the second reason why I want to talk about it is because I like to talk about it. Uh, I think it's great fun. Uh, it's a kind of theological aerobics, I guess. Gets all the juices flowing, uh, raises all of the questions, lights up the whole board with all the vital questions, I think, about faith. God, sin, election, salvation, evil, universalism, all kinds of things come to focus on this sort of question. So it's right at the heart of the matter. And I suppose it's the reason why uh, Luther called it the heart of the matter, literally, the cardo rerum, the most single most important question uh, theologically for the faith. The question of who's in charge? Who finally has the say? about questions of life and death, salvation, and so on. And it shakes out that all of the, the, one of the things that's fun about it, I think, is that it has a tendency to shake all of the gospel nuts out of the tree. <laughs> uh, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting and exciting question. Grace is, after all, a rather wild thing, you know. It's, uh, uh, and the tendency, I think, too often when we talk about grace is to make it so uh, safe and pedestrian uh, that it doesn't even seem to be a very dangerous thing to talk about. Uh, but it is. It is a powerful and... Uh, lively, wild thing. I always 
like those passages in C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales. I don't know if you remember those when he's talking about Aslan, who is the lion, the god figure, and they wonder about, well, uh, when the children are in trouble, won't Aslan help? And uh, the answer is, well, you know, you never can tell. <laughs> He's wild, you know. He's a lion. Uh, he's good, but he's wild. Uh, I think we have a tendency to make grace, to make it too uh, uh, domesticated, as though it were our thing. It's not that, it's God's thing. And that's what uh, we have to talk about. Uh, and why I find it so interesting and, and I think vital for us to talk about. And finally, I, or, or th I think that it, that one reason why it's important to talk about it, it is because we do have some serious theological problems in the church, particularly. I think that uh, the way in which we tend to talk about grace and or fail to talk about it is um, tearing the guts out of our message and preaching today. Uh, if everything is reduced to our decisions, then suddenly God tends to drop out of the picture. I sometimes wonder whether one of the biggest problems in the church these days is a lack of belief in God. That there is someone from without, out there, who's actually calling the shots who's actually in charge. God just tends to become sort of a uh, an extension of our own innards, our own piety. Uh, gets watered down. Uh, and, and the result is what I sometimes like to call just a kind of decadent uh, piety in the church. You know, uh, we used to worry, I suppose, about how to get right with God, first and foremost. But nowadays, God tends to become sort of a uh, patsy. God is love. Everybody knows that. Love, 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 all over the place. And so God doesn't really enter significantly into the picture. Uh, and it's not so important to get right with God anymore. It's more important, as we seem to be told again and again, to get right with ourselves. And whereas once it was important to live the godly life, 
nowadays it seems to be more important to learn how to affirm each other <laughs> in our chosen lifestyle, whatever that may be. And the result is a kind of decadence. God disappears and doesn't affect anything anymore. And, and, and that has all kinds of spin-offs, of course. We don't understand ourselves. We, don't, we mistake the human problem. Uh, and all of that is, is exceedingly faithful faithful for, for the church, for the Christian life, and the whole <coughs> show. So that's why I like to talk about this, because it raises the question about God in a radical fashion, not in an abstract way, but directly. What does God have to do with you? What is God up to? Does God make a difference? And I hope that by discussing some of these questions, it will restore some confidence, finally, in what we have to say and do uh, in the church. So first, let me say a word or two about decision theology. Free choice seems to be one of those things that we think are the inalienable rights of uh, people, one of the basic presuppositions of the modern world. Everybody believes in free choice. And it's, of course, uh, a, a, an idea that comes at us, particularly, I suppose, in, in the church. It's very interesting that it comes at us particularly in the church, in spite of all of the things that we read in the Bible, where it is held very often by many people that, after all, decision conscious decision is necessary for a vital faith and for salvation itself. That one must make a conscious decision and commitment for Jesus. Billy Graham, for instance, of course, will say again and again that it is necessary or at least vital to make a conscious public move to get up off your duff and walk down the sawdust trail, to commit yourself, to declare yourself, to put yourself on the line, and that this is absolutely necessary and vital for faith. It is a kind of Christianity, of course, designed for a democratic, democratic society, society of rugged individualists, 
No more tribalism. No more state churchism. No more automatic Christians. Are you baptized? Well, that's not enough. Don't count on it. You have to decide who you are and where you're going. You've got to take the helm of your life and stop just slip-sliding along with the crowd. Now is the time. This is the hour of decision. Jesus is waiting on you. Let him in today. That is what we hear, and we'll have to talk considerably more about it. But to take on that question, of course, is to uh, uh, take on and to welcome you to a kind of a theological journey. Uh, maybe not so much a journey as a kind of a trip through a minefield. <laughs> uh, set off all the questions one of the toughest and most puzzling questions for us today. Why is it tough? Well, I think because we have a tendency to make it so. Now the answer to this question is really quite simple. Is God an electing God? Well, certainly the Bible would say so. And what then is the solution to that problem? Well, God simply does it. He elects. Well, how does he do that? He comes to do it. In Jesus, and Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I sent you, go and do it. Now, that's really a very simple matter. But the problem is not so much in the fact of it. The problem, of course, is that we are so complex. It's one of those things where the answer is there before us all the time, but the problem is apparently that we just can't or won't believe it. The problem is not with God. The problem, of course, is in us, and it's called sin. But in this respect, it's a little different from what we usually think of. Usually we think about sin as misdeeds or wrong actions or the lusts of the flesh and all of those nasty things. But here is a much less obvious problem. Sin is wrong belief. Misbelief. Wrong thinking, an error of the mind and the spirit, 
and such sins are much harder to deal with. When you do wrong deeds, at least, usually we know or have some inkling that they're wrong. We know we shouldn't have done that. But if you think wrongly, how can you escape that? Especially when you think you are right. <laughs> When Jesus came, of course, one of the primary images he used for the people to whom he was, with whom he was dealing, and in most instances, the people of God. The primary image was blindness. And the problem was that those whose eyes were open were really blind. Now that's a real tough problem. As in John, uh, the healing of the man born blind, that fascinating discussion. Where Jesus finally says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees asked him, well, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have some excuse. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now there is the reason why what we're dealing with tends to get so difficult for us. It isn't because it's so complex but because we tend to slip so easily into wrong thinking and find it difficult to comprehend. We'll have to talk more about that. Now, where shall we start? Well, perhaps the best place to start, of course, is, uh, you might have guessed it, justification by faith. Justification by faith alone without the deeds of the law. In that passage which we read, of course, Paul moves immediately from, and it's an interesting uh, chain, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, those whom he predestined, he also justified, uh, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Justification by faith alone without the deeds of the law. It might also well read justification by God's act alone in Jesus Christ without any con contribution or action on our part. Faith 
as Luther said over and over again, and it was probably one of the hardest lessons to learn, faith is a passive thing. Something that simply comes upon us. But when we state it like that, Justification by God's act alone without any contribution on our part. You can see immediately that the thing branches out into in two directions. One toward God and one towards us. So that when one talks about justification by faith alone, one has immediately the question of God on the one hand, and what God is up to, and us, on the other hand, and what who we are and what our problems are. We can't speak about justification without coming to a view of God, on the one hand, and humankind, and the human predicament on the other. One of the problems, I think, in, in Lutheran theology is that we've always tried to put together justification by faith with the wrong picture of humankind. One of my favorite theologians, a German theologian by the name of Ivan, he's never been translated into English, and it's always safe to quote somebody who nobody else, nobody else reads, but... Uh, <laughs> He made the statement that one of the troubles in Lutheran theology is that it's tried to put justification by faith alone together with a view of the human, uh, a view of human freedom and free choice that doesn't really belong. And so there's always been a clash and a tension and a battle within Lutheran theology itself. You know, in the old days here in, in, in this country, it broke out into a real battle <laughs> among uh, Lutherans, particularly the Norwegians, the controversy over election in oh, way back in the, at the turn of the century. Uh, question that they had to finally try to settle by means of a compromise, the upfjör, as it was called, <laughs> uh, in order that the old uh, Norwegian Lutheran Church could be formed. And that's just a symptom of the fact that this battle has gone on for a long time. And the, re the reason is, I think, that one's tried to put together justification by faith alone an understanding of human, the human self as the self that could make a free choice over against God. If you're going to say faith alone, one has immediately to say also, as Paul said in the passage in Romans, predestination. The doctrine of predestination is simply justification by faith 
dissipated with reference to God. If we are justified by faith alone, then we are predestined by God. The two go together, hand and glove, and can't be separated. An alarm, if we get alarmed at that, if we get alarmed at predestination, that's simply alarm at having to deal with God. The question is, is God God or is he not? And justification by faith alone of course, means justification by God's grace alone. Just an aside, I, I've spent a good share of my time <clears throat> trying to uh, get Lutherans to stop saying justification by grace through faith. <laughs> I never seem to succeed. Uh, why is that? Why don't I like that? Well, in the first place, neither Paul nor Luther ever said that. Uh, and there was a reason for it. Justification by grace through faith really is an attempt to put justification by faith alone together with the wrong understanding of human uh, selfhood, uh, human responsibility. What it means is justification by grace is, you might say, yes, God's gift, but faith is our part. So you can say, yes, we're justified by grace alone, but you have to have faith. So faith becomes that little crack in the, in the door by which one sneaks in uh, the human dimension. Now, when Luther and I think Paul also said justification by faith alone without the deeds of the law, they meant justification by God's grace, period. Uh, justification <clears throat> that grasps us as God's act and not ours. God's justification is first and foremost God's deed, a divine deed, something that comes at us from without. Luther sometimes called it an alien word. Alien. Like a comet from a strange, unknown territory. Something that bursts in upon us in our all turned inward upon our selfness, completely from without. Extra nos. One of the aspects of, I suppose, the more strict orthodox theology that I tend to agree with is that it was a forensic act. That is to say, a strict pronouncement, a divine word, a creative word, if you will, 
by God alone, made for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. See, uh, you are justified for Jesus' sake. Not even for your sake, perhaps. But for Jesus' sake. God just ups and speaks. As we say these days, he makes a statement. <laughs> kind of a neat phrase in this sense. Makes a statement that is indicating to everybody who he is and who's in charge. I declare unto you the gracious forgiveness of all your sins for Jesus' sake. Period. Unconditional. No strings attached. Just the straight out divine word. Now that kind of shocks us. And it ought to. Because now suddenly we are exposed. It's as though we were getting along fine in the dark <laughs> and somebody turned on the light. And all the questions and protests we raise bear witness to the fact of the darkness. And the questions are often very, very pious. And perhaps that's just the trouble. But, 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 don't we have to do something? Don't we have something to do with it? Don't we have to change? Doesn't there have to be some transformation? Isn't this judgment on the part of God a little bit hasty? Or isn't it dangerous? I mean, after all, how can you flat out declare someone to be just? Or forgive sins unconditionally. Isn't God a little bit irresponsible? <laughs> As, of course, the questions were all raised of Jesus. How can he forgive sins? I mean, these are wicked people. That's uh, as one recent commentator put it. The trouble was with Jesus that he forgave really wicked people, and that, of course, simply could not be done. Well, the questions that we raise, you see, expose us. Why are we worried? The questions are directed more back at us. Don't we want the light? According to Jesus, that, according to the Gospel of John, as you recall, that was the problem. 
The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness could not, well, encompass, wrap itself around it. You might almost might say the darkness couldn't deal with it. But men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Exposed. We get worried about God and what God might do next. The truth is, I suppose, and this is what uh, we'll have to deal with, the truth is that we always want to channel God's grace. We want to tone it down, make it safe. Uh, one of the, I think, images one might use that's like some kind of atomic stuff, you know, and we always want to put rods in the reactor to keep it from going off to uh, keep it in hand. Because grace alone worries us. Uh, at least I worry about you. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do with it. Of course, I have no worries about myself although that sometimes happens, occasionally. But what happens is that in justification, the light shines, we are exposed. And what is exposed is what Luther called the bondage of the will. That we are bound sinners and have a hard time, or that it is impossible for us you might say, to let God be God. When we ask questions like that, well, don't we have to change? Don't we have to do something? The only answer, of course, is, well, don't you get the point? It, the change has already come upon you. The fact that you're asking the questions is an indication that something is up. That perhaps the Spirit is already getting to you. It's a little bit like... Uh, uh, a teenager once who, who read that book on the catechism that Jim Nestingen and I wrote called Free to Be. And uh, he said, you know, I don't like that book. And I thought, why? Well, because it seems to tell me that I can do whatever I want. Now the question, of course, gets to be the trouble with these kinds of questions is that they always come back at you when they're over there in their traps. Now what would you say to that? Now I suppose the immediate reaction would say, oh, no, 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 you can't. You can't do that. I mean, after all, you've got to behave yourself. Uh, and you've got to you know, do the law and all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, if you do that, 
You've lost the battle. What should one say? When the, when the teenager says, I, well, I can, it seems to be telling me I can do whatever you want, whatever I want. I think the only way ahead is to say, you know, you're right. Spirit is getting to you now. But see, now the question is, what do you want? Who are you? Who is this I that you're speaking about? And why are you afraid? That's the question now. When the question is raised, grace has come upon you. Because justification by faith alone demands, or you might say creates, a new person. That's why you can't use the same old understanding of the self. It demands a different anthropology, <laughs> theologically. That's a big word, of course. We used to say it much more simply when we talked about the doctrine of man, but we can't say that anymore. Somehow, I, the doctrine of humankind doesn't quite do it. Uh, so, we'll switch to Greek instead and talk about anthropology. <laughs> uh, justification by faith demands and presupposes a different understanding of the self, that there's a radical break. The old person dies and a new one is called into being. The new one who could say, yes, yes, I do what I want. But the I is the new being. And that's where the battle lies. It also presupposes, justification also presupposes a different understanding of God. God is one who acts, who comes, who speaks, who has something to say to you. The moment of the proclamation is God speaking in the living present. If you worry about the divine election, the moment of the election is the now of the word of God. I say unto you, you are God's child for Jesus' sake. That God runs the show means that God is the one who has brought you to the moment, to the place, to hear his speaking. I think we've lost that. 
know, we too much would uh, we come together and oh, we talk about sharing our experiences and uh, you know uh, telling little stories uh, and and maybe uh, talking about God. One of the essential battles, of course as we'll see when we talk about this problem, uh, between Luther and uh, <clears throat> not only the medieval church, but the church yet to come <laughs> that was symbolized by his opponent Erasmus, the humanist. One of the essential differences was that Luther understood the Bible to be a word from God. Not words particularly about God, not descriptions of God, but the word of God, God's speaking to us, and that those who have heard it are called upon in turn to speak it, to do it. Now, if one starts from justification by faith alone, then one ends with some radically different understandings of who God is and what God is up to. Yes, God elects, and there's no way you can get around that. I mean, if you're at all going to deal with the biblical God. But the question is, then, well, what does he elect to, to do? Or whom does he elect? And of course, the only answer that can be given to that, if it is put to you or to me? I can only answer one question about God in that regard. Whom does he elect? The answer has to be you. You might say, well, how can you say that? Well, that's what Jesus was all about. Go and tell him. Now, one of the reasons, and perhaps this is what I'll wind up today's with, <clears throat> I had hoped to get farther along, but that's always the problem. Uh, the reason why this is so vital, I believe, for the church, for all of us, to, to, to think and discuss this problem because it derives, it drives us to a certain kind of speaking that flat out direct address. I say unto you, you are God's child for Jesus' sake. Does God run the show? Yes. Now he has run it in such fashion that you are here. 
and I am here, and I have something to say to you. Somehow, somehow, it seems so hard for us uh, to say that or to believe it. Um, and maybe I couldn't say it. Somehow it seems hardest of all, for some reason or other, for preachers. <laughs> Simply to let go and say it. You know? And let God worry about it. <laughs> uh, I suppose maybe it's difficult because, after all, we got this big organization on our hands. And if we tell people that Jesus forgives sins unconditionally, I mean, my goodness, who's going to support the building fund? Uh, and I know the feeling, you know, often... Uh, if you preach the sermon and you think, boy, you know, uh, and you accidentally maybe actually succeeded in preaching the absolute grace of God, <laughs> you get sort of worried. You say, oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? This to me is why it's so important. There are two, basically, I think, two kinds of ways that we can undertake to speak of God. One is to try to explain God to folks. And maybe to explain God and what God has done so nicely and effectively that people might decide it's a good thing for them. Then we're in the camp of decisionism. The trouble is, I think you'd have to say, that it's, it's very, very difficult, finally, to explain God. Uh, so that God will appear all that nice to folks. One of the basic diseases of contemporary Christianity, I think one might say, is that God has, be God has become too nice. Years ago, uh, uh, J.B. Phillips wrote that book, Your God is Too Small. Uh, I think maybe one ought to update it and say, your God is too nice. It doesn't, it doesn't accord with the way things are. It's very difficult to explain God so as to make him nice. Or to explain God so as to make room for our decisions, and so on and so forth. 
we used to say, well, you know, well, I guess we can't say yes, but we can say no. <laughs> well, the trouble with that is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People have been saying no in droves. I think we have to look at the other possibility, the other way to speak of God. And that is to speak the word not about God, but from God. The word of God, the direct declaration, I declare unto you. Uh, those moments do occur uh, mostly now in the liturgy. Uh, you have to write them in a book to make sure that we'll say them. <laughs> I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I declare unto you the gracious forgiveness of all your sins. Uh, flat out, no uh, strings attached. This is the body of Christ given for you. And it's that language, it seems to me, that we need to recover. And what's important, think about that in our discussion, you see, Theology is a kind of a second-hand ex exercise. Really what it is, is talking about how one should talk. <laughs> uh, and we make the mistake sometimes of, of, of forgetting that distinction. And we talk about and never get past theology. That is, talking about God. But the trick is to move from talking about God to speaking the word from God. And that's what is finally at stake in this entire debate. How should one speak on God's behalf? Well, time to quit.